The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. What a joy to be with you. My name is Nathan Carden. I'm the lead pastor here. The word tabernacle may be a new word for you, unless you went to a musical concert at that old venue in Atlanta years ago. Tabernacle is a strange word. It's not a word that exists outside of really the biblical story, except for somebody like me. I've shared to some, with some of you in previous sermons a little bit about my spiritual heritage, and I'd like to revisit some of that today. Some of you it will be kind of a new part of understanding me and perhaps why I'm so weird. This is a picture of my grandfather. Now, this is actually a photo of um, kind of an old um, slip of film that, that didn't get developed. And my grandfather is there in the image in the white shirt on the right-hand part of the image with a dark necktie. <clears throat> and this is under a tent. This is on their property in Antioch, Alabama, which is outside the great city of Andalusia. And it's more of a geographical expression than an actual place. It's just a few hundred people that live kind of out on dirt roads. And my grandparents lived there. And on the land adjacent to where the small farm that they had, my grandfather started hosting in the 1970s a camp meeting, a tent camp meeting. So here's a clearer picture of the actual tent that you see in this picture that they had set up. They had no elephants or circus peanuts, but um, it's kind of what it looked like. And then later, years later, they did away with the kind of portable tent that they would set up every August when they would have a week-long series of revival meetings in the evening because that's the best time of year to do that in South Alabama. And so they did away with the tent, and they actually built a permanent structure. And it looks like, if you've ever seen pictures of any other kind of old camp meeting, it looks like one of those. Uh, my grandmother painted a picture of the, what they called the tabernacle and gave it to me. It sits in my office. And this is just simply a pole barn with a tin roof and a sloped floor, and it had kind of a stage down here on this end, and then some mismatched uh, pews donated from other churches and open benches and things like that over the years. And I remember in the early 90s when my family would go to these camp meetings, my parents would take us down for this annual meeting. They would bring in, literally bring in, a dump truck load of fresh sawdust from a local sawmill and rake it across the floor. So I associate all of my spiritual memories smell like fresh cut pine. I mean, I can't go through the lumber section at Lowe's without being taken back to this camp meeting. And my parents, who loved me despite the fact they made me wear a suit, um, I had a polyester suit, like a synthetic suit on, in August in South Alabama. And I remember getting those shavings, the curly Q shavings, like stuck in my like polyester socks with those shiny penny loafers that I had on. And I would listen in this tabernacle, as they call it. This was the tabernacle. I would listen to those great gospel songs sung and hear really passionate preaching, which sometimes could be a little scary for a kid. And then watching people respond to that, and they would go forward and pray at the end of services, and they would you know, pray for all kinds of things, sometimes for healing or for something to change in their life. But a lot of times it was for repentance and for God to, to become a part of their life in a deeper way. And even sometimes I remember going down and praying, um, sometimes out of, out of obligation and sometimes voluntarily um, at the tabernacle. So the word tabernacle for me kind of is connected to some of my deepest and oldest spiritual memories. But the word tabernacle is not just a concept in one part of the Bible. 
what I've realized is that actually it's a concept that shows up from page one to the very last page of the Bible. And beginning this week and in the following five weeks, I want to expound upon this theme because I believe that it represents God trying to find a place to live in our world even to the present day. We open worship with Psalm 27. I'd like to revisit that with you. I want you to hear the sense of desire in the person who's the author of Psalm 27 to dwell in the presence of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. Would you read the bold with me? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. There are two things that jump out to me about this beautiful poem or a hymn. It probably would have been sung by the Jewish people. The two things that jump out at me is one how there's something so beautiful and compelling to the author about feeling like they are being surrounded by the presence of God. The one thing they want, they say in verse 4, is to be in the house of the Lord. And then the second is that there are four different images or descriptions given to this space, this environment in which God dwells. The words include house, temple, dwelling, and tent. Now, this is the NIV. If you were reading from a different translation, you might even come up with the word abode or some other kind of description. But what what is captured here for me is that in Psalm 27, we're given an image of something that I think is universal about humanity. That from the earliest of times in the Christian faith and in the Jewish faith on to the present day, people are really, really hungry for the idea that they could be in the presence of something otherworldly, the presence of the divine. If you've been looking at your news feed over the last several weeks, you've heard about this strange religious event in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University, across the street from Asbury Seminary. This is a picture of Asbury University. In February, on February 8th, they were gathered for a chapel service. They have every week, every Wednesday, a chapel service for the student body. It's just about 1,000 students, small liberal arts, Christian liberal arts university. They had a typical chapel service. They had a guest preacher that day, and the preacher delivered a sermon and felt it was a bomb, a dud. That's never happened to me, but I'm sure it's awful. Okay? And it was such a dud he felt. I actually am very familiar with that feeling. It was such a dud he felt that he texted his wife immediately afterwards. She had said, how did everything go? And he was like, it was awful. I bombed. But yet somehow, some students began to stay around after the service, after they sung the last song, and they, so the musicians kept playing. And the students kind of lingered and lingered. And then students that were walking by heard the doors of the chapel open, and they heard music and thought, well, chapel's over and classes started. What are these people doing? And they were kind of drawn in. And it's an indescribable kind of thing, even from the witnesses or testimony of the people who were there, but they just were drawn into a presence that they described as loving and peaceful. Those were the two descriptors that they described over and over again. This is loving and this is peaceful. And they didn't stop singing. They didn't stop at lunchtime. 
They stayed throughout the afternoon through dinner. They worshipped all night long for multiple days on end. And people would come in at different times and then others would leave to eat and rest and then they would return. And it wasn't led by faculty or administration. It was led by students, both musicians and people studying for ministry and fellow Christians. There were, of course, a number of people that had to go check out this spectacle of religious phenomenon. And one journalist who went, it was reported, by the way, on Fox and CNN and New York Times, one journalist said, there were a few spectators and tourists who were just there to observe what was happening, but the vast majority were people who were hungry to experience the presence of a living God. Now think about it. If I were to tell you that right now, 150 yards down the street, that there's a building where the presence of God has shown up, if not out of a sense of spiritual devotion, at least out of a sense of vain curiosity, you would go and wonder what's happening and you would want to take it in and experience it yourself. And what was so unusual about this outpouring, which lasted from February the 8th through February 25th, with thousands of people descending upon the city, they finally had to put state troopers at all the entrance roads to this tiny little community to tell people, I'm sorry, our community can't take any more. We're at capacity. We can't have any more visitors at this time. What was so odd about it is there was nothing about it that made it a personality-driven event. They didn't bring in the Pope or some megachurch pastor to deliver some outstanding you know, message, such a gifted communicator. There was no person like that at the middle of this. It was not produced in any kind of way with you know, lights and smoke and manipulating the physical environment so people would feel something. It was not performative in any way. There was no religious spectacle. Yes, people came forward to pray with one another and they would kneel on their face sometimes on the floor to pray, but no one reported that anyone was drawing attention to themselves. It was a pure act of religious devotion. Human beings are hungry to encounter God's divine presence. They always have been. And God knows that. And not only do human beings have a desire to encounter God's presence, God has a desire to encounter human presence as well. In the book of Exodus, we're told the story of how the people of God who have been enslaved for four centuries in Egypt are liberated through God's servant Moses, and they go through the Red Sea and they begin a four-decade journey of wilderness wandering. This is a map of the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel. Up in the top left-hand side, they would leave Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they would wander south on the Sinai Peninsula, making their way to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19, Moses would climb the mountain, and there was a cloud which encased the presence of God. The people of Israel would stay at the foot of the mountain, and there, in that cloud, God would reveal to Moses the Ten Commandments, the ones that you and I know. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, so on and so forth. Well, five chapters later, six chapters later, in Exodus chapter 25, God calls Moses back up upon the mountain and this time does not give Moses an ethical directive for how the people are to live. Instead, he gives him a set of construction plans, architectural blueprints, and a building materials list. Listen to this in Exodus 25 verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, 
Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and the onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. And would you read this part with me? Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So, Moses descends down the mountain, gives the instructions as God instructed him, and they begin to build a sanctuary. This term sanctuary in the Hebrew is a word called mishkan, and it can be translated as tent, but more generally it simply means dwelling. We call this portable tent a tabernacle in the English because we've read back through the Latin version of the Old and New Testaments from the 4th century, translated by Jerome. We call it the Vulgate. It was just the Latin translation of the Old and New Testament of the Bible. And that word was used, uh, used a Latin word, uh, tabernaculum, which is the term where we get the idea of tabernacle, and it simply means a tent. And in the presence of Israel, what it kind of implies is this is a place where God will descend from the heavens and live in a special location in the middle of the people of God. And that presence will begin to shape the rest of Israel's life. So if you were to read from chapter 25 all the way to chapter 40 of Exodus, you would read God's special instructions about how to set up the tabernacle. There are dimensions, there are measurements, there are instructions for how to assemble things together. And what you would end up with is a diagram like this. This is a biblical scholar's look at what kind of a bird's eye view layout of the tabernacle would be. You have on the right-hand side of this image where the arrow is, the main entrance. And that entrance is through the dotted line, the white with the black dots around it, which was essentially just a fence. And it was to delineate kind of an outer perimeter with kind of different gradations of God's holiness toward the middle. And so there was an external barrier and then another barrier and another barrier to the Holy of Holies. Now, once you entered into this larger courtyard, there, of course, was an altar for burnt offerings, which is the yellow and orange looking square with the two poles on each end. Then there was the lavar, which was like a pool of water where they would ritually wash their hands and cleanse themselves before moving into an inner structure that was enclosed. That was the actual tent of dwelling or the tabernacle. And in this tent, we'll, we'll be unpacking this more because there's so much symbolism that even stretches into the New Testament. We'll be unpacking it over the next few weeks. But in this main tent, which is kind of the, the rectangle there that's kind of bordered by gold bars there on three sides. There was a large sanctuary area and then a very exclusive area called the Holy of Holies. If you can see that blurred edges around that, um, that circle on the far left of this image, that is where the Holy of Holies would be, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a place that only a priest would go once a year to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of all of Israel's sins. Now... 
If you're to visit southern Israel, we didn't get a chance to go there in our last trip to Israel in January, but there's a national park there called Timna Park. And it remembers some of the wandering of the people of Israel through those 40 years in the wilderness. And in Timna Park, they've actually put up a replica of the tabernacle. And you can see it depicted here. You have the outer fence. You have the altar where they made sacrifices and the lavar stand. Looks like kind of a, a bird bath. And then there's the tent of dwelling there in the middle. This was the place that Israel believed the presence of God dwelt. And we're told in Exodus that whenever there was a cloud that was present over the tabernacle, Israel knew to stay put where they were. But when the cloud began to lift, it was time for them to pull up those tent pegs, to pack up their belongings, and to be on the move wherever God was leading them next. And for 40 years, before they cross over into the promised land and eventually build Solomon's temple, which gets destroyed after some centuries, and then eventually they build King Herod's temple, which gets destroyed after a few decades. God is dwelling amid His people, among His people, in this portable tent called a tabernacle. And I mentioned a few minutes ago that this is not just something that happens for four decades in the book of Exodus but it begins on the first page of Scripture and goes all the way to the end. Let's look at just a glimpse of where it shows up again in the very last book of the Bible. Into the future, beyond this moment, we're given a vision of what God is going to do on earth in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, would you read this with me? Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. An incredible promise. Well, here are the implications of God dwelling on earth, all of the earth. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Here at the end of the Bible, you and I are given a vision for God's ultimate purposes in the world. And do you hear what's happened? Every Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That prayer is answered in Revelation chapter 21 completely. And all the things that break our hearts in the world, all the things that make us anxious and fearful and sad, all the hunger and violence and war and famine, all the things that are broken in the world will be fully redeemed. It's an incredible vision of what God will bring about in the future when God tabernacles or dwells at the end of time. But how will God accomplish this? How do we move from that tent tabernacle in the Sinai Peninsula to this grand vision of God's redemptive work in the future? Well, the Gospel of John tells us very clearly how God intends to do this. In John chapter 1, his gospel, he doesn't start with the story about Mary and Joseph and shepherds and magi. Instead, he starts with a poetic description. In John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was made, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Would you join me? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. You want to take a guess? at what that phrase made his dwelling among us in the original Greek comes from? The Hebrew word for tabernacle. There's one paraphrase of the Bible that says the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, tabernacled among us. What's John saying? That the presence of God that was longing to find a home in the world, a kind of cosmological house hunters, that took up residence in a tent, and then in Solomon's temple, and then in Herod's temple, has now taken up residence in a human body. And all that holiness, and all that power, and all of God's justice that was represented in the tabernacle and temple is now walking around for three plus decades in the world in the first century and speaking God's words and doing God's will in the human body of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't want us to lose perspective on how radical this is. You know, Christians can love and respect people who come from different religious traditions. I believe we're commanded to love them as our neighbor and to respect them. But that does not mean that we all fundamentally believe the same thing. All other religions of the world are anchored upon human beings gathering our strength of will to reach up to the heavens. All other religious worldviews It doesn't matter if you're talking about Islam or Hinduism or Judaism or Buddhism. There's all the emphasis placed upon the self-righteousness and effort of an individual to attain acceptance, to become accepted. And yet the God of Israel is revealed to us through Jesus Christ has been from the very first moments of creation looking for a place, not for us to reach up to heaven, but to settle down and find a home in the world. And God does that ultimately through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, Jesus lived 20 20 centuries ago. Where is God's presence now in the world? Until that Revelation 21 vision becomes a reality, where is God's tangible presence, God's holiness in the world? We're given a little bit of a hint. In John chapter 20, when the Christ who had been killed on Friday and spent Friday night and Saturday in a tomb has been raised on Sunday morning and then goes back to find His disciples, John 20 says, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
And again, Jesus said, read this with me. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father tabernacled in the world through the Son, the Son turns to some of the most unworthy cowards who had just abandoned Him in His greatest hour of need and says, as the Father sent me as a tabernacle in the world, you will become my Father's presence in the world. But now, you have the power of my Holy Spirit. And when I stop and think about Israel in the Old Testament, who had the presence of God living in their community, did they completely rise to the call to live as a holy and just people? No. In the words of the great American theologian Cameron Carden, they're a hot mess. And their story throughout the Old Testament is just one ping pong game back and forth of messing up and then pleading for forgiveness and God restoring them and then going back and for one generation getting it kind of right until they begin to devolve into chaos and brokenness again. And the cycle repeats over and over. They're not a very good tabernacle in the world. And then I move into the New Testament and I see these 12 persons that Jesus has called and in His greatest moment of need, they let Him down. Maybe, maybe, it's the presence of Jesus breathing His Spirit upon them that gives those disciples hope that maybe there's a new source of courage and a new source of clarity and self-understanding that will enable them to live as tabernacles in the world. And maybe, just maybe, that's the same hope for you and for me. My mom called me in the spring of 2007 and said that my grandfather had passed away in the night. He had had a heart attack at 87 years old, and they were unable to resuscitate him. And so we began to make plans to celebrate his life at a funeral. And so at the little farm where they lived, where they had the adjacent tabernacle you saw pictures of, just up the road, a quarter of a mile, was a little church that my grandfather had pastored for the last 17 years before his retirement. So he pastored there for 17 years and then lived for another 20-plus years in the immediate community. So almost four decades of living on this tiny little community with a volunteer fire department and a country store and two churches in Antioch, Alabama. And we gathered to celebrate his life in that little church, standing room only. I had the opportunity to speak and to give some witness to his life and talk about my grandfather. And after the service, we walked out the back door to the cemetery right there next to the church. And we laid him to rest and committed him into the eternal arms of God. And then we walked right back into the fellowship hall. And I picked up a styrofoam plate and a solo cup. And I began to, you know, load up mashed potatoes and potato salad and fried chicken and sweet tea. And it happened that I was walking down one side of the potluck buffet and there was another man walking down the other side parallel to me. And I didn't know him. And he said, young man, thank you for your words. I've known your grandfather my entire life. He appeared to be in his 60s. And he said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you know, your grandfather, of course, he loved horses and he did. 
And I remember being six years old, and your grandfather, every summer, at least once, sometimes twice, would come by my house, this is honest to God truth, with a wagon drawn by donkeys. Is your picture of me becoming a little more clear now? Like, And he would pick me up, and then the Connett boys, there were three brothers that lived just down the road, he'd pick us up and sometimes some others, and he would take us a few miles down to the river, and we would swim for the afternoon in the river, and then he would load us back up, and we'd come back and bring us back home. And while we were there on the way, he would tell us Bible stories, and he would ask us how school was going, and he would encourage us, and, you know, stand strong in the Lord. And by that time, we were at the end of the line, the table, and he lingered for a second. Our plates were full. We were ready to sit down and eat, but he lingered for a second, and he said, I guess what I'm trying to tell you is this little community of five, 600 people, is forever changed because of the life of Charlie Harwell. And then we went and ate. You know, as, as I think back about that, my grandfather, whose vision brought that tabernacle, which was supposed to be a place of divine encounter, and it was for many people, that witness that that man gave had nothing to do with that pole barn. Because I think the real tabernacle that he was referring to was one that was in the flesh and blood body of my grandfather, who lived as a husband and a father and a neighbor and a friend and a pastor for almost 40 years in one community. And by that man's witness, that community will never be the same. Tabernacle tent of God's dwelling in the world. Brothers and sisters, God has no more perfect a place to take up residence in this world, to shine as a light of love and holiness to everybody else than in your heart and in mine. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't really feel up to the task. I'm very well aware of my own humanity. But I trust that if Jesus breathed his helper, the Holy Spirit, upon those disciples in the story, that he wants to do the same for you and me. All we have to do is to make ourselves available. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for the great miracle of grace that you reach out to us when we are lost in sin, that you pursue us, you claim us, And then even after we are forgiven and we respond to your grace, your work is never done with us. You are continuing to perfect us to become more like Jesus every day. And your presence in the world is now in the lives of the men and women in your church. Give us the audacity to believe that you might use a people like us to live as your representatives in the world. Make your home within us and among us, we pray today. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.